the uh, national goal for the Lottie Christmas offering is $155 million. What would you do with $155 million? You wouldn't be able to spend it all. And I know some of you would try. That's a lot of change. Well, listen, we are, um, for those of you who maybe are new with us, we are continuing our journey through Matthew's Gospel. And uh, believe it or not, after three long years, we will be saying goodbye to Matthew next week as we uh, wrap up uh, the 28th chapter. Let me just be very clear. Uh, This is not a traditional Christmas message. But if we ever divorce Christ's incarnation from his crucifixion and resurrection, we have lost something. And so today, as we have the opportunity to, to focus in on something that Jesus has forewarned us about, in the upper room, as he is changing the Passover to become the Lord's Supper and talking about how his blood and his body will be broken and, and poured out for us as a new, new covenant, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and tells us not only is he going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but he's going to be the wrath-bearing, propitiatory sacrifice bearing God's wrath in our place, we have been forewarned. And yet when we come to the crescendo, to the climax, to the entire reason that Jesus came and get to the crucifixion, it is breathtakingly horrible and beautiful at the same time. So this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be looking at verses 27 Um, through 66. We'll finish out chapter 27. And we'll see uh, just a couple of things here quickly that I think are good for us to ponder as we think about why there is a Christmas message at all. And it's because of what Jesus came to do. So we get to this portion of the story as Matthew continues telling us what is unfolding in Jesus' last day on earth we find something that is really hard to understand. The man who's done nothing wrong, who has sought to come and exhibit love and compassion and goodness and teaching from the scriptures, in his crucifixion, he experiences an almost universal mockery from the realm of people. Now, have you ever been mocked? Maybe not. Maybe not. Let me ask you this. All right, this Terrible. We're going to rewind the clock here a little bit and go back to elementary school. Were any of you ever picked last to be on the kickball team? You know, or the ultimate frisbee team, Marcy? Uh, Sorry about that. Just had to work that in. It's terrible. I mean, that's a mockery of sort. Just being passed over for everyone who's bigger, stronger, faster than you. And yet it's much more than that when it comes to Jesus. He is mocked for who he is not for what he can or cannot do. So we see this in verses 27 through 44. Listen to what God's word says. It says this, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they placed a reed in his right hand. And then they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spit on him, took the reed, and they kept hitting him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes on him, 
and led him away to be crucified. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the skull place, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, The one who would demolish the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now. If God wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. It's human nature to want information that you're not privileged to. Here's the thing that's interesting in this story. There is very little detail about Jesus' execution. Did you see how they said it in verse, oh, where was it? 35. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. After crucifying him, three words, to summarize Jesus' execution. There is no mention of the practice of crucifixion and what it actually did. And while we don't have much information about the execution, we have extensive information about how the people reacted to Jesus' crucifixion, and they reacted with mockery. Maybe they weren't brave enough to actually go toe-to-toe with Jesus because he happened to make a fool out of everyone that challenged him on his teaching. But now that he was on the cross, let's kick him while he's down. What is amazing to me is that there is no gore, and we know that this is perhaps one of the cruelest ways to execute a human being. The physical pain is simply not central. And I think Matthew, in wanting to hone our focus on Jesus' complete obedience to the Father and his love for mankind, is not sensationalizing this event or playing upon people's emotions to make them feel sorry for Jesus. The act of crucifixion is presented very simply, three words, and there is no additional New York Times sensationalization or dramatization. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes. We don't even have any information from Jesus' point of view. We see in here just a few minutes, Jesus will make a statement from the cross from which we can gather some edifying information. We don't get Jesus' perspective on his crucifixion. We got that in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we don't get it here. Instead, we get lots of information on other people's reactions. And here's what we find. Everybody in this episode mocks Jesus. Specifically, we're told that soldiers, 
sojourners, people who are just passing by, travelers, spiritual leaders, and even criminals, every single one of them, mock him. They reject him. How do the soldiers reject him? Well, the story's told us. After Pilate has washed his hands and said, if this is what you want, I'll give it to you. They have Jesus flogged, and we spoke last week about how terrible, uh, 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 just heinous, flogging is as an act. Many people die from flogging. They don't even make it to the crucifixion because the flogging is so uh, significant. And uh, you've had this experience. If you have had, if you have kids or grandkids, you work in a nursery, you work at a school. What what happens when your kid gets an ouchie? Gets a boo boo? You slap a band aid on it, right? Now. <clears throat> You wait a couple of days, and certainly you, you put whatever the ointment is on it, and it's been covered up by that bandage, and you know after a couple of days it is right for that bandage to come off. Depending on what kind of kid you got, that may be a battle. Because pulling the Band-Aid off is maybe even worse than the original injury. And sometimes you leave it on a little bit too long, it becomes like a second of flesh. I mean, you're going to... You're going to have to, you know, do plastic surgery once you pull that thing off. Here's, here's the point. And this highlights something that the scriptures don't, but I feel like it's worthy of our consideration for just a second. After his flogging and his body lacerated in every possible way and all of the blood and the loss of fluid, whatever kind of fluid it is, plasma, blood, oozing out of his body, they pull his clothes off of him, which most certainly are caked onto his body, the act of stripping him tears open those wounds. And when they have made the blood and the liquid flow again, they take one of the soldier's robes to put on him, material to wet flesh, have their little entertainment for however long it is, and then undress him again, most certainly reopening the wounds to put him back in his clothes. It's unthinkable to consider exactly what he has gone through. Not only is there terrible pain, but they are inflicting this pain on him for the purpose of mocking him as king. The Jews mocked him as Messiah. The Romans mock him as king. We're told that when they get done with their mockery, they march him out to the place called Golgotha. Jesus ostensibly carries the crossbeam of his cross to the gates of the city. And at the gate of the city where there is two-way traffic coming and going, they meet a man, Simon the Cyrenian. He was a Libyan, which means he was from Africa. If you don't know your geography, he was a dark-skinned man coming to Jerusalem, perhaps on a business trip. Perhaps he was Jewish and he was coming for the Passover, but he gets conscripted to carry Jesus across the rest of the way. And you go, why? Think about Jesus' last couple of days. I mean, the drama of the Last Supper and taking what was the Jewish Passover, translating that into something new and talking about not only your death, but the fact that you're about to be betrayed by one of your closest. And then you go from that to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays so intensely that he sweats drops of blood. This is not just a casual Friday evening. 
or Thursday evening as it were. He goes from there to being arrested, to being tried, to being flogged. From a human perspective, he is near total exhaustion. And so this man, Simon, is conscripted to carry his cross. And once they get to the cross, the mockery is joined not just by soldiers, but by others. And we're told specific details about that mockery. They mock three specific things about uh, Jesus. Uh, We see in this episode that they mock his personal strength. They mock his teaching clarity. And they mock his relationship to the Father. Every single one of those. We see this unfold in the passage that we just read. Personal strength in verse 40. Hey, Jesus, you bragged about pulling down the temple. Well, if you're so powerful... Pull yourself off the cross. They're implying, just to be clear, that the reason Jesus is stuck on the cross is because of personal weakness. You understand that it's the complete opposite that is true. It is not weakness or nails that affixed Jesus to that truth. It is the resolve in his will to fully obey his Father and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is not personal weakness. In verse 42, it's teaching clarity. They kind of assume, Jesus, if you would have made yourself clearer, we would have believed you and maybe this wouldn't have ended up. But even now, if you pull yourself off the cross, we'll believe in you. All that teaching stuff, eat my flesh, drink my blood, that doesn't make sense to anybody. Pull yourself off and do a miracle for us and we'll believe in you, but you've been unclear in your teaching. We haven't understood you. So really, this is your own fault, Jesus. They mock his relationship. They say, hey, listen, you called yourself God's son. If God really wanted you, he could save you. God is not saving you, therefore you must not be his son. You're an illegitimate usurper. It's interesting, we're told that the sojourners, the people that are passing by, because crucifixion would happen in a public place. Because if you did something wrong that merited the punishment of crucifixion, they wanted it to happen to be a discouragement from anyone else following in your footsteps. So the the crucifixion would happen at Dave Lyle in I-77, so that people passing by would see it on their way into the city. And so it says that the passers-by would wag their head and point their finger and address Jesus directly. But the Jewish leaders, it's very clear in this passage, they don't ever speak to Jesus directly because they despise him so much they won't even look him in the eye, they tell him what they think. They talk amongst themselves about him, but never to him. How much do you have to hate somebody? Not even speak to them, even when you're saying bad stuff about them. They just completely despise who Jesus is. Yet it's interesting that the Jewish leaders never deny the previous expressions of his power. He has saved others. True. He just can't save himself. Is that a true statement? Could Jesus have saved himself? Absolutely. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't. Because our redemption was more important than his salvation. He did what he did to save others. And they're implying that he's hanging there because of weakness. And yet we find 
in this most holy moment, Jesus was incarnated to be a sacrifice for those who would put their faith in him. The, the, the reason Christmas means anything at all is because Easter is the reality behind it. He came for a purpose. Cute and cuddly baby, king of the universe, to die for rebellious sinners like you and me. And the greatest miracle that we find is what he didn't do. He could have pulled himself off the cross. He could have called for legions of angels. And the greatest miracle is that he did not exercise the power that was appropriately his, yet willingly, willingly died this death. What he didn't do was perhaps more powerful than anything that he did do. Men, I think especially, though women as well, when given just a tad bit of power, have to prove it to everybody in the room that they have it. One of the statements about power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely is true, unfortunately. And yet Jesus was so powerful that he was willing to appear weak. He did not, as a human, need to prove anything to anyone because he was secure in his identity and his relationship with the Father that he allowed himself to demonstrate his power in weak-seeming ways. Listen to the words of 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. It's not on the screen. Listen to this. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't go tit for tat. When he was suffering, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. Peter's making an astonishing claim right now that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the option to choose righteousness or to choose sin. Before you come to Christ, you don't have an option. You might do things that get you applause from the world, but the Bible says if you don't do it intentionally to glorify God, then it's not a good deed. It might be a, a good human deed. It's not good theologically or spiritually. And he's saying here that because of what Jesus did, we, he did it so that we might live for righteousness. Listen, I expect unredeemed people to sin. We should expect Christians to at least try to live righteously. And yet, pay attention to the news, pay attention to Facebook. You get people all over the place that claim their privileged status of sonship or adoption into the family of God, but there is no family resemblance because they don't want to live the way that Jesus wants them to live. And we have allowed that to exist in American Christianity, which is why the rest of the world hates us. Because if this is what Christians look like, they don't want anything to do with it. And you know what? I don't either. I don't either. There needs to be a reckoning and an accountability that if we are going to make a profession, that we are actually going to possess what we say that we have. And this is what he's saying. Jesus didn't do all of this so that he could bear our penalty so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. You are healed by his wounds. And the implication is you're only healed by his wounds if you live the way that he has empowered you to live. So if you're living the way you want to live instead of the way that Jesus wants you to live, you need to ask yourself the question, has your disease been cured? Maybe not. Maybe not. Universally, everyone we see in this picture is making fun of Jesus. Some Messiah you are 
some king you turn out to be. And the truth is, isn't that true? What other king has died for you? Everybody wants your vote. But every human ruler wants something from you, but not something for you. What king would do this? We're told for our second point something very interesting in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus' disciples are chastised because of the way that they're talking about Jesus. And Jesus says something that is amazing. To the Jewish leaders, he says, if these are forced to remain silent, then the rocks will be forced to cry out. And that's exactly what we see in this story of Jesus' crucifixion. While he has been universally mocked from the realm of people, he is unanimously attested to by the realm of nature because his disciples have fleed and are not there to testify to his character. The created order begins to attest to the reality that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Look at verses 45 through 56. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministered to him were there looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. How does the realm of nature unanimously attest to God's genuine kingship? Well, we're told that the sky, it darkens. And this is not just a local storm. This is a supernatural darkness that the earth shakes and that the grave surrenders. It's all right there. I mean, you don't need to know a foreign language. You just need to be able to read English. It's there in the text. It's interesting to me that at the start of Jesus' ministry, when he is baptized, what happens with the sky? It's a bright, sunny day like we all enjoy. And out of this beautiful, bright, sunny day, the heavens are clear and you can watch the Spirit in the form of a dove come down and light upon Jesus. That's how his ministry started. How does his ministry end with dark sky? It's interesting because we're told that the darkness lasted from 12 until 3 and that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit at 3. Once Jesus died, what happened to the darkness? Sucked away. It's amazing. Not a meteorological coincidence. 
what happens in the sky is very clearly related to Jesus' cry. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The physical darkness is a symbol of a relational reality. Why is it dark? We know that God is perfectly holy and righteous and that he cannot bear to look upon sin. And at that moment, as Jesus is in his body, bearing the sins of the world, becoming not God incarnate, but sin incarnate, it's almost as if God the Father could not look upon it, so covers the entire scene with darkness. Now we know God can see through the clouds, God can see in the dark, he can see. But there's this metaphor that God almost doesn't want to look upon it. And Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father turns away as the Son fully bears the wrath of his righteous Father. The abandonment is judicial, not fickle, not simply relational. It is judicial. Jesus is not crying out in despair, but he's crying out in fulfillment that he's being forsaken by the Father because he is fully bearing sin that it can be done away with like the darkness will evaporate here in just a moment. We're told in verse 50 that Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. The dying words of dying men are not typically at maximum volume. This does not sound like a man whose life force seems to be ebbing away and maybe his little energy meter is just barely kind of hanging on. His batteries are getting depleted. It says he cries out with a loud voice and then he does what? What's the word say? He gave up his spirit. It doesn't say Jesus died, making Jesus passive and the victim of his, his circumstance. It's an active verb, saying Jesus did a volitional act. He gave up his spirit. Was he killed by the Jews and by the Romans? Yes. But Jesus is in charge even in his dying. Could he have lingered on the cross a little longer? Yes, but not if he didn't need to. He's been abandoned by the Father. He has fully borne the wrath of God and his mission is accomplished and he cries out with a loud voice and he gives up his spirit. He pours it out. He lays it down. He yields it and even in his death, he is in control. The truth is that for Jesus, he was abandoned by his Father so that we might be adopted by his father. And one does not happen without the other. There is no adoption for us without abandonment for Jesus. That's part of the deal. He knows that's his job, to die as a sacrificial lamb, and he does it willingly. And immediately upon his death, nature continues to attest to him, not just in the sky, but the earthquakes, and it does two things. It tears the temple veil from top to bottom. Now, here's the question. How does Matthew know that? I mean, can you call in CSI and figure out, here's a torn, we've got two pieces of a cloth. Where did the tear start? I don't know. Maybe you can get a material witness. It's <laughs> bad. A material. <laughs> Maybe you can get a specialist to figure out how that happens. Here's, here's what I think happened. Okay, the Bible doesn't say this, so I'll step away 
Get away from the Bible. The Bible doesn't say this, okay? But what is happening while Jesus is being crucified? It is the Passover. So while the chief priests are at the cross mocking Jesus, what are the other thousands of priests doing? They are working in the temple, and they happen to be present to eyewitness the tearing of the veil from top to bottom. And the place that they're never supposed to go into is wide open now for them to see. That's part of the reason in Acts, when the day of Pentecost happens and the gospel is proclaimed, it says that many of the priests believed. Why? Because they saw the sign that it was not a man that tore it, it was God himself who tore it to say the old system of sacrifices is done, the perfect sacrifice has come, there is no more curtain between man and God, I have taken care of that through my son. There are all kinds of questions here that we don't know about the veil, we can surmise that there were eyewitnesses, we don't know what happens with all these dead people who come back to life, but it's kind of like it's a preview of some coming attractions that will happen in just a few days. Jesus dies. He gives up his spirit. He doesn't stay dead. And his power is so raw that it gets expressed in the resurrection of other righteous people who come out of their graves. Did they die? Did they die after a few days? Did they get taken up to heaven? I don't know. There are all kinds of things I don't know. I believe it because I believe in the resurrection. So if God can resurrect his son, he resurrected Lazarus, why in the world can he resurrect all these people? Don't ask me any questions about it because I don't have any answers except that God has the power to do it. We know at his death that darkness goes away. We know at his death the curtain gets torn and that the old system of sacrifices is done. The curtain of separation is torn down. And at his death, the dead come to life. And the same is true for you and me. Without his death, there is no life for us. Without his death, there is no life for us. The cumulative effect of all these things is that nature testifying to God's uniqueness issues another miracle that I think sometimes we overlook. The people who guarded Jesus and were in charge of his crucifixion were experts in execution. Jesus is one of thousands that they have likely performed they become convinced that Jesus' death was unlike any death that they had ever witnessed before. And they say, truly, this man was the Son of God. The power that shook the world so hard that the dead were raised to life has the ability to conquer man's heart. Which one is the greater miracle? the earthquake and people who are physically dead coming to life or the shaking of a man so that a dead and stony heart becomes a heart of flesh that testifies to the reality that Jesus was the Son of God. It is entirely appropriate because like like bookends on a bookcase, Jesus is testified to by Gentile magi at his birth and he is testified to at his death not by his faithful disciples, but by a Gentile Roman centurion who oversaw his execution. How amazing is God to say if the people who have been the the object of my promises and providences won't testify, I'll make the guy that kills them end up testifying to the reality of who Jesus is. Our third and final point 
verses 57 through 66, we're told about Jesus' burial. And his burial confirms the sad truth. The Son of God has died. Who do you bury? Dead people. And I think that this episode is included to specifically, minutely say, he didn't appear dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He wasn't sort of dead. He was dead. The people who were in charge of his crucifixion knew what death smelled like, looked like, probably even tasted like. That's what they did. And so we're tempted to gloss over this, but the story of burial is important because it indeed shows that Jesus died. The soldiers were experts in this. And there were later theories. People who want to deny the supernatural say, well, he didn't really die. He was really close. And when they put him in that cold cave and gave him a couple days, he kind of revived. And so they come up with a very natural explanation for what the Bible says God did by his own power. Listen to what the scriptures say, verse 57 through 66. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We sang about him this morning, didn't we? Laid in Joseph's tomb. A man named Joseph came, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. The next day, Saturday, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, He said, after three days, I will rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people, he has been raised from the dead. And then the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. You have to think about poor Pilate. Now listen, there's nothing... Uh, enviable about Pilate. But Pilate was vexed with Jesus. His wife was having dreams. He knew that he was innocent. He didn't want to crucify him, yet he gave in to the will of the people. And when the news comes, hey, poke him in the side to see if he's dead. Nope, he's dead. We don't need to break his legs. He's gone. Pilate has to be breathing a sigh of relief, thinking that he is done with Jesus once and for all. This bad nightmare of an episode is finally in the past. And that evening... Joseph of Arimathea, a man that we have not known anything about up to this time, comes knocking on Pilate's door, asking Pilate about this person that Pilate is trying to forget about. Can I have his body? My goodness, how much am I going to have to deal with this Jesus fellow? Here's the thing that's interesting about this episode. While every single one of his disciples have fled and disappeared from this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, there is a new person emerging who happens to be a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and John's Gospel tells us was a secret disciple of Jesus. 
There is no testimony. There is no testimony from any of Jesus' disciples and the only bona fide disciple present after he dies is a secret one who now is willing to identify himself with Jesus in his death in a way that he was never willing to identify with Jesus in his life. We're told that he's wealthy. And the point is this, that when disciples are unfaithful, God will find one who will be faithful in every circumstance. There are disciples that you don't even know about that when the time is right will make themselves present, ready for service. Even in apparent defeat, there is victory because Joseph of Arimathea shows up at just the right time. What is most uh, interesting about this is that even in his death, the Jewish leaders still fear Jesus. They feared him because they're like, all right, we know he's dead, but we're so concerned that we're going to violate the Sabbath because we're going to come before Pilate on a Saturday to say, hey, he predicted his resurrection, so can you um, give us a guard for his dead body? I don't see a lot of night shift security workers at cemeteries, do you? You don't need them. And you have to wonder, Pilate's going, really? All right, Friday night, Joseph comes, Saturday morning, all the Jews come, and we're dealing with Jesus again. He has to just be completely frustrated, and he sneeringly suggests that you've got your own guard. He's the temple guard. We know that Pilate consents to sending soldiers. But the irony of guarding a dead body might be effective at keeping his disciples from coming and stealing his body. But what will the guard do when someone wants to come out of the grave, not get into it? What good will a soldier do at that point? This God who has shaken the earth and raised the dead and caused the sky to get dark will not be hindered by whatever the world's governments may attempt to do to prevent his resurrection. We have no power to prevent God from doing what he wants to do. And on the eve of Christ's birth, next Sunday, we get to remember that the reason that he came is so that you and I will take the authority that he has given to us and that as we go throughout our lives, that we are commanded to take the gospel with us, to be his disciples, to remember his sacrifice and God's seal of approval by resurrecting him from the dead so that we might walk Father, I am well aware that any human words, any explanation I can give to the death of Christ is woefully inadequate. And I pray that you will take these best attempts and by your Spirit apply it to our lives to help us understand where we are denying the reality of Christ in our own lives whether we are harboring secret sin, Father, make us aware that there is nothing that is hidden from you. Where we are 
trembling perhaps with a facade of righteousness, but never really bringing our sin to you, God, convict us of whatever it is that we need to do to take that next step of following you. If it is publicly identifying as a disciple or being baptized and saying, putting on the team jersey and saying, I'm willing to be identified with the church of Christ, his bride. Help us not to cover up our sin. Help us not in our own way to mock you by claiming you as our king and yet living the way that we want to. Father, as we enter into this season of Christmas, as we have had the opportunity to reflect upon your death for me, may we never substitute the gifts that we exchange and the physical things of this world that we play with for the greatest gift that you have given us. Your Son, our righteousness, our atoning sacrifice. And may we, this Christmas, find life in his name. In whose name we pray.